0: You're about to listen to an episode where we talk about hunting, so you might be interested in my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. To get it, go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. From this guide, you will learn how to get a deer hunting license, obtain a firearm certificate, and get permission to hunt deer on a chosen piece of land. Everything is explained in simple language and in easy-to-follow steps. Get my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. Simply go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. This is Tommy's Outdoors 94, Tommysoutdoors.com Ever since I started a podcast, I wanted to record an episode about hunting in Africa. I uh, know I knew I, I want to talk about hunting and fishing. Uh, About the wildlife and I knew that hunting in Africa is on the bucket list for many hunters Well, so that day is today and our guest is Steve Scott Steve is a veteran hunter and he's also a host and producer of uh, hunting TV series Safari hunters journal Steve Scott's outdoor guide and I'm gonna leave the links in a description of the show uh, obviously, uh, Steve is on all social media platforms, but I would especially encourage you to check out his Instagram page. That's Steve Scott TV. That's triple T in the end, because there's a lot of very aesthetically pleasing photos, but also the descriptions under those photos. You can learn a lot about hunting and how hunting contributes to conservation and how hunting contributes to local economy. Um. So yeah, I'm not going to be dragging this uh, introduction any longer, just a mandatory reminder that if you listen to the audio version of this podcast, it is also available on YouTube, on Tommy's Outdoor's YouTube channel, where you can see me and Scott talking, and if you're watching that on YouTube, then obviously the uh, podcast is available on any and all podcast platforms. And so now, ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, African Big Game with Steve Scott.
1: Stevie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tommy. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: It's great to have you here. Uh, we were talking before I hit the record button that this is like uh, probably three years in the making. This podcast, but <laughs> we finally we're finally here. Schedule, um, schedule, <laughs> absolutely. Um, Stevie, you are so many things. You do so many things, and you're a member of so many organizations. Um, so. I would like you to introduce yourself for our listeners and our viewers, but I would ask you a question as a kind of to tease out that introduction. And the question would be, how do you really, first and foremost, you identify yourself as a hunter or you identify yourself as a journalist or as a media producer? What would be that one thing that you would say like, I'm a-
1: I'm a hunter. And everything that I have done thereafter is a result of me being a hunter. If I didn't have that fire that my grandfather and my father instilled in me, I wouldn't be doing any of this because, frankly, the production side isn't a great deal of fun because there's a lot of work on the back end, but even in the field, you know, you've got two to three times the amount of noise and scent and visual to, to disrupt the hunt. And I have to be certain that, you know, the camera's in the right place and everybody's got the shot and everybody's on the same animal instead of just going out and like, that one, okay. So uh, the, the, the production has been a wonderful turn in my life and I'm really blessed to be able to do that. But it all came from the fact I' a hunter
0: right so that's a that's a that's a quite you you haven't you haven't thought about this too long it's, it was very clear it was very clear to you very <laughs> clear to you so what else you do you're you're a member of many organizations many hunting organizations and and you're also writing for journals and you're producing uh, safaris so hunter's journal TV show
1: well yes um, it's it's kind of eclectic um, I, I'm also an attorney. I don't really practice, although I'm licensed. Occasionally I dabble in that. And since COVID, I've been doing a little bit more because I haven't been able to get into the field as much. But um, through the fact that I produce Safari Hunters Journal, I've had several opportunities to write. Um, I, I do some commentary uh, based on. <sighs> I've seen a lot in the world with regard to conservation and I have maybe a, a, a broader perspective than a lot of people. And, 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 you know, while whitetail and Turkey hunting here in the States is, is fantastic and we can benefit people through the hunters against hunger or Sportsmen's against hunger, whatever the organization is by donating uh, venison to people in need it's a little bit more removed than when you're taking a Cape Buffalo to a remote village in Zimbabwe and the people greet you with, with song and dance and, and just way too much gratitude. But uh, so I, I can see the, the real boots on the ground effect that hunting has on indigenous communities, people that aren't as fortunate as, as we are. And you know that is a perspective that guides what I do because as I'm sure you are I get attacked by anti-hunters every day and you know I'm tired of saying the same things because what I'll get is a troll who will come on well how could you kill a beautiful animal like that well you know go read you know the last 19 posts that I have, because that'll explain in in that period, that'll explain why I do what I do, but you get this randomness and and they want to direct something at you. And, and, and that's just, that's just the way it is. But uh, I I am able to, from an academic perspective, not necessarily convince you, but I can put forth an argument that can't be refuted. Because the great thing about hunting today in the modern world, sustainable use sport hunting, it cannot be refuted because hunting benefits wildlife in a seven and a half billion person world. And anybody that says it doesn't is either uninformed or lying. And these people that are so adamant about hunting being bad at the very root of it, They're emotional about it, and I cannot overcome their emotion that they are so sad to see this white-tailed deer die, and yet they eat food. And when you eat food, even if you're a vegetarian, you've killed thousands of creatures for that farmer to be able to create the soy that goes into your tofu. (laughs) <laughs> that you can be righteously indignant about, that you're so much better than me. And, you know, nobody's going to listen to that because they're too busy telling me that I'm a jerk, you know? And yeah. So you just move on.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. And and like like I said, uh, for people who are listening to that, this is interesting because I already had a episodes where, where uh, I talk with my guests about, benefits for uh, conservation, uh, especially in Africa of hunting. It was episode 66 and 69 with Professor Adam Hart. And also in 76 with Ron Thompson, we talk about the management of, of uh, elephants in that case and in general. Um, and so in this episode, I, I want to kind of like not repeat the same thing, but we straight sure. away hit on that because it's,
1: it's, it's just impossible not to. It's the foundation of what we do. Because it's very easy in this world where people are immediately stereotyped to say that you are a privileged, rich, white American that goes to Africa and rapes and pillages the wildlife. And if you're uninformed and you hear that, it could appear that that might be true. And in fact, there are some people that are like that. I know some people that are like that. Fortunately, they're a very, very small minority of the fraternity of hunting. But in order to talk about what you need to do to go to Africa and how you need to make your plans, a person needs to be equipped to respond to the person when, you, when they say, well, what are you doing? Well, I'm about to go to Africa on safari. Why would you do that? You need to how be able to answer you? that question.
0: exactly exactly how how what's your what's your view on the term trophy hunting are you are you consider this term tainted and unhelpful and better not use it or are you just unapologetic about it
1: i am not unapologetic about it uh i try to avoid the word trophy there's there's two there are two audiences here for our audience our people who understand that the trophy is a remembrance. It's a, a, a memento of an experience that culminated in the harvest of an animal, and it's no different than a picture or a keepsake. It's just something that's more prominent that we can display, and in particular de- uh, decorating circumstances is, is very, um, arc- uh, uh, very attractive in in its presentation. And I've struggled with this. And I've talked to people that are thoughtful about this because the term trophy hunting denotes something. And in the rest of the world, we're 20%, 15% of the world. The other 80, 85%, trophy hunting has a very negative connotation because it denotes that the hunter is only there to glorify him, him or herself, that they're there to kill something and they don't provide any other benefit. And that's why I try to avoid the term, because it's not what we do. It's just a very small part of what we do. The problem is, Tommy, I have not been able to come up with another word or phrase to, to replace trophy honey. Because what we do in Africa, for the most part, unless you're biltong hunting, is we're trophy hunting. Because the animals now, with very few exceptions, the only reason they're there is because we are there to provide financial incentive for the landowner or the government, in the case of concessions, to have these animals for us to provide them revenue that's the quid pro quo and I, I know you don't want to get into this because you've done episodes on this oh no
0: but, but you, you look feel, feel free it was more it was more kind of uh for the listeners who was just like oh not again so we gotta I, get and, into and a and little it, more it it feel be.
1: free to <laughs> but with in africa especially and it's it's true all over the world but especially in africa If there is not a financial incentive, whether it be on a game farm in South Africa or a concession in Zambia or Zimbabwe, if there is not a financial incentive for the people that live next door to the wildlife to preserve the wildlife, they'll kill it. Because an elephant or a hippo can come into a person's maize field just as it's about to ripen, just as they're about to harvest and destroy their entire food source for a year in one night. Now, if you were faced with that, what would you do? Would you say, oh, you know, elephants are charismatic creatures, and I need to leave them alone and starve to death? Or would you take your shotgun that's filled with nails, probably, or rocks, and shoot the elephant to not kill it, but to get it away, and now... This elephant has a very bad experience with man that he's wounded and elephants have a memory. And the next person they come along, they kill because man causes hurt to elephants. Change the scenario. And and this has happened to me several times. Uh, An elephant that has caused problems that is in the maize field or in Namibia that had actually killed someone. There's a special license for you to harvest this problem animal and you're going to pay a significant amount of money for the license. And the license will go to the people who are dealing with the wildlife. Your quid is to be able to harvest the animal. You can take nothing. Everything stays. But the quo pro is that that I'm going to pay money and I'm going to leave everything. And I just get the experience. Now, Experiences are great. I also get a show because I've got the guy behind me with the camera. But you cannot ask a person that has to share their environment with dangerous wildlife to be hands off about about it because this is literally life or death with crocs, with hippos, with elephants for sure, to a lesser extent, lions and rhino and, and certainly buffalo are in that mix. There has to be a reason for these people to want to preserve the wildlife as opposed to telling the poacher, yes, there are some elephant that are coming to the village. You need to come kill them and take their tusks. And that doesn't serve anyone's purpose.
0: Yeah, exactly. No, it's it's. um... Very, uh, I would say, thoughtful that you say like, yeah, I was trying to steer clear from, from the term. And this is a conversation that I have with many people. Even I'm talking a lot about the concept of rewilding. And some people are just so attached to the term and they're going to like, look, that term is not helpful. Let's stop using it. And I see that, that you have uh, exactly the same approach to to, to, to that. Um, how does that start it for you? How is that? Like, did, you, did you want it? Did you want it to uh, go hunting? Because obviously, you're not, all, not only hunting Africa, you're hunting all over the world.
1: Yes. So yeah. I,
0: I wonder, you know, how, how does it start? Was it passion? You always want to do that? You see, like, a, you know, read the book or, or how?
1: Oh, no, the, the, this is not a, an intuitive thing. It's, it's not difficult, but it's not like, OK, I want to be a television hunter. If you want to be a television hunter, the way to do that is be rich. Because, you know, when I started, uh, my first show went on the Outdoor Channel in 1999. And back then, you know, companies were, outdoor companies were really glad to have the opportunity to be on television because there wasn't this proliferation of television. And now I'm in a much different position because I don't have a lot of sponsor support because virtually every sponsor I've ever had is or has undertaken doing their own show because <laughs> they see that, okay, we're paying this guy to go do this. And you know, I'm kind of uh, charismatic and I could go shoot that bear just as well. And so they take their money and, and it's certainly they're right. And, and they can control their message much better because when I'm s- supported by a sponsor, I want to support that product. But if it's a dog, I'm either not going to support it or I'm going to tell you that there's a problem. I've had, you know, I've had sponsors that say, you're going to say this. It's like, no, I'm not because it's not the truth. And we're just going to have to terminate our relationship. But in answer to your question, um, I wanted to hunt. I hunted whitetail. That's what we did. Hunted squirrels and rabbits and quail, you know, small game. And the biggest game Coming from Oklahoma, there is, is the white-tailed deer. And we didn't have a lot of them when I was growing up. Um, When I was growing up, well, uh, honestly, I started bow hunting when I was 12. I took my first deer with a bow when I was 33. Now, part of that is a function of, okay, education, you don't get to hunt quite as much as you could. I had an equipment problem one time. Uh, my first compound bow was literally strung backwards, and I didn't know it. And I was pulling instead of 60 pounds, I was pulling like 25 pounds. And it was my first compound bow, so I didn't know. And I had first good deer I had, a nice 10 point, probably a 140 class deer. I got about this much penetration. And, you know, We never found the deer and we wouldn't because it wasn't wounded enough to 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 succumb but i i wanted to do more i read the the classic authors I, i read a lot of hemingway i read a lot of ruark um you know even tr's writings were just are inspirational and i wanted to go to africa because africa is the mecca of hunting now there are people sheep hunters that will argue and certainly there are some sheep that are A very, very difficult hunt. And on a scale of difficulty, they're at the top. They're also at the top financially. (laughs) And, you know, um, you know, a struggling lawyer from Oklahoma is not going to be able to do an Argali uh, very often in his life. But Africa was more attainable. So I was in a gun store. And there was a 375 H&H Magnum. That was a Winchester Model 70 with a fiberglass stock. And it was like $400. And the reason it was $400, a 375 in Oklahoma doesn't sell very well, at least not in the 90s. And then marked it down because, you know, it had dust on it. Nobody ever, you know, nobody wanted anything to do with this gun. And so I bought it. And I bought it only because if I own the gun, that's going to give me incentive to save the money to go to Africa.
0: So you set yourself on the path. I, like, I now set I have myself
1: a... on the path, but after shooting the gun, and God bless Winchester, but it just, this did not work. This was, of all the guns that I fired, and I, and I've, I, I killed a Buffalo with a 460 Weatherby, and that was nasty. But this 375 Winchester, it just about killed me, and it was not a pleasant gun to shoot regardless because of a recoil Uh, oh it was terrible i i i I shoot a 375 all the time now and it's not a problem this particular gun is just too light the stock was too straight it just you just absorbed all of it and you know and then not being used to it and shooting off of a bench for the first time with it uh, it was just a the only thing that could have been worse if I'd you know gotten a, a, a scope kit which <laughs> I'm sure I did at some point in time but I, I wanted to go to Africa but I knew I needed to learn how and so I called a guy who was part of the local chapter of Safari Club International and I joined and there were a lot of people around me I thought that would be able to teach me what I needed to know to go to Africa well, There weren't a lot, a couple of guys in the chapter, but not a lot of people have been to Africa, but they had these banquets and auctions and there was an auction for an African safari, seven days, two animals, and it was a steenbuck and a warthog. That was it for seven days, but I didn't know any better. I'll get the bidding started at $500, okay? Crickets. Nobody bid. Nobody wanted anything to do with it. So, I'm going to Africa. <laughs> so, you were literally
0: the only one who, who wanted The
1: only one. <laughs> and I am the perfect client for this guy because, you know, I've been saving my money and now I'm going to Africa. I get over there. I have two animals on my free list. I end up shooting 11. I gave the guy something like, $9,000 in, you know, uh, it, it was exactly how his marketing donation, he, as he wanted it to go. I didn't know, but I had a great hunt and I wanted to go back sometime. So fast forward a year, next year, same thing, except this hunt has five animals in it. So it's much more substantial. And, and, you know, there's a wildebeest and a gimp buck in it. It's not trivial, all right, well, you know, I just went to Africa, but, you know, I want to help the chapter. all start the bidding at $500. Crickets again. <laughs> so I go home. It's like, honey, uh, I'm going to Africa again. And it just, it, it started personally. As I had more experience with the chapter, I became an officer. And one of the things that SCI promoted was something called Sportsman's Against Hunger. And it was a vehicle for hunters to donate their surplus white-tailed deer, mostly white-tailed deer, to people in need through a network of butchers. And our wildlife department was running the program. wasn't set up in the optimal way. And I approached them and asked if this could be something that our chapter ran. And they said, Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You, you take it, you know, that's fine. We're happy to support it, but if you want to manage it, that's great. And so as a chapter, we built it up and it actually became the largest Sportsman's against hunger program in the country within a couple of years. All right. So we're running out of money because we're paying for the processing. The program is, is, is too big to finance. The budget for sportsman's against hunger was actually bigger than the Safari club chapter budget. Huh. So I had to do something, and the do something was create an event. And what it was, uh, I was introduced to General Schwartzkopf at uh, at a convention through a friend of mine. And I asked him if he would be interested in, in helping us promote an event for Sportsmen Against Hunger. Uh, the general was very generous, and this was a program that he supported. And he said he would come. So we built a celebrity sporting clay shoot and banquet around General Schwarzkopf. And the governor came and congressman came and a senator came and Barry Switzer came and a bunch of professional athletes and one of the Mandrell sisters. It got it was a pretty big event and we raised a ton of money. But before that, we had to promote the event because it had never been done before. Nobody knew about it. So there was a station, a television station. I'm finally answering your question. There's a television station in Oklahoma City, a, a what we used to call a UHF station. It, it was, you know, a higher channel uh, that had was owned by a, uh, a building supply company, electrical plumbing, that type of thing. And they were very, very successful. And the owner would get cooperative advertising money from the different lines that he represented. He had so much money for this. He bought a television station. And (laughs) the only thing that was on this television station was Southern gospel music, because he liked Southern gospel music, except on Saturday afternoon, there was local outdoor TV. And this is the 90s. And there was outdoor TV on TNN. And nobody had heard of the outdoor channel. It was there, but nobody had heard of it because all they were doing was gold prospecting at the time. So I went to the manager of the station and asked, could we run public service announcements about this program? And there was a gentleman uh, who lived close by that was a friend of mine named Ferguson Jenkins. Um, He was a Cy Young winner. I think in 71 or 72. He pitched for the Cubs and for the Rangers, and he's in the Hall of Fame. And, you know, he's a big deal. And Fergie said that he would do the commercials for us. And when I told the station manager this, he said, not only will we run the commercials for you, we'll produce the commercials for you. Wow! So, you know, they promoted it. They did a great job. The thing was a sellout. We raised lots of money for the program and everything was good. And now I'd made a relationship with the television station and a long story to shorten just a little bit. Uh, in my past life, I dealt with a lot of professional athletes uh, doing money management as, as an attorney. I, I was also a certified financial planner and I was doing money management for professional athletes. And so I was able to get good guests and uh, I was now the president of the Safari Club chapter you know, I had places I could hunt and they asked if I'd be interested in hosting a show that they would produce. It's like, well, yeah. Cause all I have to do is stand in front of the camera. And if any, if you've gotten anything from this interview so far is I can talk. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt. So uh, some things happen. We got halfway through the season. Some things happened that didn't allow us to continue from their side, from the management side. And the guy I was working with said, look, not going to be able to do this anymore, but it's yours. And in that half of a season, the veil of ignorance over what it takes to do a television series was lifted. It's not intuitive, but now I knew what to do. And it's like, all right, I've been in practice for a long time, I've been doing the same thing for close to 20 years you want to continue to do that the rest of your life or you want to hunt and fish for a living? (laughs) That's a
0: a simple answer.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, Financially, it hasn't been the best move, I can tell you that. But my life experience has been good. And uh, that's how it started. And I look back at those first shows and they were just awful. Just awful, (laughs) awful, awful. But the nice thing, Tommy, at that point in time, almost all television except for the real trees and the mossy oaks of the world. Almost all television was awful. I sent a pilot to the outdoor channel. They accepted it immediately. And I had a great run with them for, for years and years and years. And, you know, we moved around a bit, uh, but that's how it got started. And it was easy to book hunts because we're providing benefit as far as marketing benefit to the outfitters and you know, I've just been blessed to be able to, to do it. And, um, uh, at this point in my career, I'm, you know, I don't know where I am right now. Uh, coronavirus has, has changed things. Uh, I wasn't able to go to Africa. Last year was the first time I had not been to Africa since 1994. Wow. Yeah. And, um, uh, I don't have anything booked right now. I plan on it, but you know, the South African variant has, uh, has some concern for me. And, uh, a couple of members of my household have, uh, are immunocompromised or pulmonarily compromised. And I, I just need to figure out what to do. And so we'll see what happens in the future, but I've had, a really good run to this point. And if it all got taken away, I wouldn't complain because I've had a more, I, I can tell you this, I have had a much more fulfilling and adventurous life than anybody I graduated law school with. They may have more money than I do, but I have experiences that they, yeah, they'll never be able to have and that's you know that's the trade-off quality of life money you know it's just it's i think
0: story. that but that's what matters you know i think that's what matters those those experiences because at the end yeah. of the day you know well you die rich <laughs> and, <laughs> you know versus like at least i've seen things and i've done things so yeah. no doubt ah uh, listen Stevie. um you already mentioned the coronavirus and I think we all hope that the uh, really the game now is to have a, you know, fairly normal winter and then hopefully things going to go back, go back to, you know, roughly normal. Uh I mean, like 2022, this is just my personal opinion that we, we still have to battle through this thing this year and hopefully next year. So let's just, you know, go forward to the times where things starts giving back to what it used to be. And let's talk about a passionate recreational hunter who loves hunting, loves hunting and fishing. And like you mentioned at the top of the show, Hunting Africa is this, this mech, guys. This like, right? So they have on their bucket list, go to Africa and, you know, do the hunt. So obviously I'm going to, you know, follow up with questions, you know, how to go about it, where to start, where to look for, what to look for, how to prepare and so on and so forth. But I suppose the first question I have, like, is this really, how to put it, is it realistic or is it something you would almost recommend, you know, one and done and like, okay, I got Africa on my list, tick, move on. Or... Is it better to adapt more um, methodical approach and say like, okay, I, I need to do this three times, five times, four times, take it slow and kind of fifty
1: two times.
0: <laughs> I I I thought so, but you know, but is there a different approach? I, I I had a friend, you know, when I moved to Ireland where when I'm here for like past thirteen years, I really maybe in a year or two went crazy about shark fishing. I was going shark fishing and I was doing, you know, way too many trips and I spent way too much money on the charter boats. And and obviously all my fishing buddies, I was like, yeah, go, you need to go, you know, shark fishing. And a lot of them was like, yeah, I caught one. Thank you. Never doing it again. I was like, what? And so there are people who are legitimately, I presume, you know, will go to Africa, take the box. Yeah, I hunted Africa. And then they, you know,
1: go back to what they
0: used to be doing. So. Yeah, I I, I,
1: I understand. Let, let me. There's a lot to unpack there. Uh, first of all, your shark fishing, it's maybe understandable because you're fishing for sharks, fishing for sharks, fishing for sharks. You're doing the same thing. In Africa, I don't even know how many game species there are. There's like 70 different game species, and, and they're in every different type of environment, and every hunt is different. And Tommy. I don't know a person, literally, do not know a person that has gone to Africa and said, I'm done. That's all I want to do. I don't need to go back. Everyone I know is planning their next trip before they get home because there's just so much there. And it's different every time. I mean, the difference between a Lord Derby Eland hunt and a Blue Diker hunt could not be. It couldn't be more different. They're both antelope, but you know, one is tons and the other one is could be measured in ounces, you know, up a, a three or four pounds. Um, dangerous game, problem animals, meat hunting. There's just so much that can be done. And there's great waterfowl shooting there, there's great upland hunting there as well. So that there's just so much that you couldn't possibly do it in a trip and not everybody needs to harvest every species. I'm not saying that at all, but there's just so much variety. And the other thing is, and I'll get into more depth on this in a bit, but there is not COVID aside, there has never been a better time financially to go to Africa. And even before COVID, the prices of animals in Africa, except with exceptions of places like Tanzania and Botswana, where there's a very limited supply. The prices of animals have just dropped so much because there's an oversupply of, of animals. Sable prices are as low as they've ever, ever been. Uh, Inyala, um, roan, uh, lions. I mean, they're just as low as you've, there's ever been a price on, on these animals. And there's an abundance of, of, of hunters as well, professional hunters, and they're competing with each other. And they're, you know, they're driving their own rates down. So, you know, where I went on my first trip and took, uh, 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 11 animals and spent with the donation, a little, little under $10,000 with, with the flight, $10,000, I could do that same hunt today for six. Wow. Yeah, I mean, and think about it. 20, more than 25 years ago, I, I, I'm, I'm paying 50% less than, or 50% more than I would be today. No, it, it's, it, it's, it's surprising. You
0: know, I remember in 2010, I went to Africa for a fishing trip and that was around four or five thousand euro
1: so uh, wow that's a lot yeah that, I mean that that's a chunk but you could do you could do a five animal hunt for that you could probably do a seven animal hunt depending on the, on the species but the, the let me just touch on COVID because I don't want to write off this season um, our friends in Africa have suffered greatly with regard to their loss of income and there are that abundance of professional hunters is going away because a lot of companies are having to close because they've lost a year of business and they can't continue so there will be some consolidation and that will start to drive prices up again Um, the other thing is the big scary thing is the South African variant and perhaps if you went to Cameroon or Tanzania, that's not as big a concern. I'm thinking about Namibia right now, next door country. They speak the same language. It's a pretty open border. I'm Not a hundred percent sure, but I think Namibia, because it's such a l- less populated state, uh, uh, country, there's so few people there and there's so much land and they're so spread out that I, I think that might be a viable thing. The other thing that's going to have a lot to do for me is the vaccine. And when I'm vaccinated and everyone in my house is vaccinated, uh, I think I'd probably be good with it. In fact, I know I'd be good with it. Uh, I just don't know when I'm going to you know, get my turn, which is why I haven't booked a, a, a date solid. But I wouldn't write this year off. In fact, if you can go, this will be the bottom. Price wise, this year will be as low as it's ever ever will be because it will start to go up because of that consolidation in the industry. But the the thing that you you need to do, and we can't do it, is meet the people to, to decide who you want to hunt with. You need to meet them, and you go to a show to do that. And of course, all the shows are canceled. Virtually all the all the national shows are canceled, and so. Uh, with a prohibition for South Africans coming to the States now, they're not even coming for marketing trips. Now, some others can and, and have, uh, one friend of mine, they got here before the, the, the ban. And so they are here and marketing, you know, on a smaller basis and with house parties, but we have this thing called the internet internet where, you know, a guy in Ireland can talk to a guy in Oklahoma and, and we can, speak like we're in the same room. You know, all of that is there. All of that nonverbal communication is there. And uh, a person's website and face-to-face communication, and most importantly, recommendations, you know, everybody can give you a reference. Everybody can give you three references, but get 10 references from somebody and call 8, 9, and 10 and you'll know if the outfitter is going to do what he or she says they're going to do. So how do you know how'd you going to know? Well, the references will tell you. I mean, is this is this an outfitter that does what they say they're going to do? What was the quality of the of the animal? What was the uh, quality of the living situation? What were the quarters like? What was the food like? I mean, I have had some of the worst food in the world in Africa. I've had some of the best food in the world in Africa. It depends on where you are, the circumstances, and the outfitter. Because some outfitters, you know, they have a very basic meal, and depending on what day it is, you know, what you're going to be eating, because they serve, you know, a rotation of five days or whatever it is. And some places there's there are Michelin starred chefs that are cooking <laughs> this wonderful stuff and you never want to leave and, and game meat in Africa is especially good. Uh, There's nothing wrong with deer at all. Uh, It just doesn't compare to an Eland, you know, an Eland is a little bit above moose and elk. And, you know, I love elk and bison. Um, Eland is on top of that, but in fact, I shot an Eland in Texas to bring it just for meat to bring it back. So we could, we could eat it. But um finding out about those things. What are the, what's the situation? You, you, you can find things out from on a, on a macro level as well. What's the circumstance in the country? You know, 10 years ago, Zimbabwe was a tough place to hunt because there was so much social unrest. And I hunted there twice within 45 days of their election. And we hunted close to the border because if we had <clears throat> problems, we could, we could get out. Um, but you know, I've had some experience and I wouldn't send a person for the first trip to Zimbabwe in 2009. Okay. But um, South Africa, Namibia, that's usually the first place someone will go because it's extremely safe. The travel is it's long, but it's easy. And the game is plentiful and the people are educated in hospitality. The, the, a large, large part of the uh, economy in Namibia and, and South Africa is hospitality. So they know how to take care of people. And I've taken my wife, I've taken all of my children, uh, my newest child. We, you know, we took her to Africa when she, she, spent three, two or three times, you know, she was there when she was one year old. I, I mean, you go, we, we, uh, we went to Serapa Safaris in uh, the Northwest Province, and it's just a wonderful place with great service and people there that could take care of the baby while we were out hunting. And yeah, you know, just they're designed for that kind of thing for a, a family, and and that's the kind of thing that you can find out from this kind of face to face confirming it with references, looking on the web, because if somebody has done you wrong, you're going to find it on the web. You know, if somebody has got a complaint about it, you're going to find that. That'll be the first thing that comes up. The 99 good things you did are going to be behind the thing that someone's upset with you about. So I, you can, you can fairly do that. And, and then it's just a function of what animals do you want to hunt and what's your budget? Because You know, you may want, I've always wanted to hunt a lion. Well, you know, you're going to have to pony up for that, even though it's cheap, you're going to have to pony up for that. Or a kudu. Kudu are the one thing in Africa that has not gone down in price. Kudu are more expensive, and they are now really breaking them out by size. Because, you know, depends on the, the outfit, but anything over 52 or 55 has a different price range. And... Uh, you know, do you need a 58 inch kudu? No. Cause a 58, 50 inch kudu is very impressive. A 48 inch cape kudu is very impressive. And frankly, most of the people that I know don't know the difference between a kudu and a gimp spot. So you can tell them, yeah, it's the biggest one on the world record. It's the biggest ever seen. You know, <laughs> they're not going to the know the difference at your dinner party, but, uh, you, you need to know what you want. And usually for most people, the kudu is, is on the top of the list, but there are species like sable, which used to be a $12,000 hunt. You can get a sable now for 3,500. Um, that's an opportunity that someone should probably take. Cause it won't be like that forever. Um, roan to a lesser extent, but Roan are an animal that is inexpensive in price. Um, the gimsbuck, the wildebeest, you know, all of those more common animals, not the, not the specialty animals are, are, in, are, are, very inexpensive relative to what they were. You know, you're going to still pay more for things like a blue diker or a valray buck, a uh, grice buck, that type of things, things that are less common. There, there's not a great supply, but those, those more common animals, the gemsbuck the zebra, uh, certainly, Wildebeest, uh, steenbuck Diker, all of them, uh, Red Heart Beast—they're very prolific and y- y- they're they're inexpensive. And to give you a bottom line, if you have five thousand dollars, you can fly to Africa, you can shoot five animals. You won't be able to bring them home if on that five thousand dollar nut, but you can harvest five animals, fly there and back, tips everything for five grand. And you know, people spend that on a kind of just okay elk hunt. And this is the reason why people go back because I love elk hunting. And how many times do I fire my rifle when I'm elk hunting? Once, twice, maybe none. You go to Africa, you're going to get some trigger time. You're going to get to to be in a situation where you're hunting multiple animals and you have several opportunities at them because typically you're going to be on foot, spot and stalk. And just they're not always going to work. So you get a lot of hunting experience. You get a lot of bush experience. And just the sights and sounds. The the bush is different unless you live in South Texas, which is exactly the same. (laughs) But to watch the trackers work, to see you know, what they can see when you see nothing. You have no idea something's there, but there's, there, there's an animal right there. I heard,
0: I heard stories where, where they say, like, yeah, there's an elephant. Where? There. There. Behind the tree. No, that's an, <laughs> an elephant.
1: Is surprising. You wouldn't believe it, but it is true. Elephants can hide in plain sight. They are so big. And if they're still in the right situation, you might not see them. You might walk right by them, but you don't need to walk by them because if you walk upwind of them and there's a cow with a calf, you might have a problem. So it's really important that those trackers see the elephant. So they take you on a different route, but my point about going back, okay, you've gone for $5,000. You've hunted five animals. They're kind of the lower cost animals. But you really do want that kudu and, you know, you'd like to go to a place where you got a big Gems buck. Well, maybe that wasn't where you were. Maybe you need to go to a different spot. So I need to go to a different area for a larger specimen of this particular species. Uh, You know, now I need a buffalo because, you know, after one or two plains game hunts, it's the law. You have to hunt buffalo. (laughs) And South Africa is a great place to hunt buffalo. In fact, the biggest buffalo in the world are generally in, in South Africa, but it's a different experience hunting there. It's a legitimate experience and it's a legitimate hunt, but it's typically gonna be in an enclosed area. Now that enclosure may be 50,000 acres, 25,000 hectares, but 20,000 hectares, but it it's still an enclosure. Kruger Park is an enclosure. And you know, when people say, How can you hunt behind a fence? Well, would you hunt Kruger Park? Well, sure. Well, there's three million acres fence there. What's the difference between that and another fence? And then it becomes a degree of the cover and the animal, the, the species. And it's squishy because it may be different for one animal species as opposed to another one. But you may want to go north. You, you may want to go to Zimbabwe or the Caprivi Strip or Zambia or Tanzania even and have that concession experience that is more rural Africa. It's not as developed. You're going to be in some places doing things that, you know, you didn't expect uh, and it wasn't really on the plan. Uh, and, and that's part of the maturation of an African hunter, you, you typically start with plains game. I don't recommend that you start with, with dangerous game. And there's a specific reason for that. You know, one is, you know, you don't eat your dessert first, (laughs) (laughs) but more importantly, with the exception of cats, most the physiology of most African game is that the heart lung, the vitals, are more forward in the cavity, where in North America, we are taught to shoot behind the shoulder because that's where the heart lungs of the elk and the moose and the deer, the white deer are. In Africa, on a giraffe or a gemsbuck that's a total gut shot. On a buffalo, you might get a lung, but you're probably not. With almost all African game, you shoot in the shoulder. And I'll tell this story uh, because we're good friends and he won't mind me telling it because it's been on television. But Matt Emmons was uh, uh, is a gold medal winning shooter. He was on the USA shooting team for years and he's won multiple medals. And in 2004, he won a gold medal, should have won a second gold medal, but something happened and it doesn't matter. But I took him to Africa because he's a great guy and he's a great personality and he added a lot to the, to the, to the character of the show. And his first animal we came across was a warthog and, and we came up on a body of water, a, a, a pan, they call it. we we would call it a pond here. Um, and there's a warthog drinking at a hundred meters and I've told him and he's read the literature and I am literally in his ear, whispering, In the shoulder. Now, this is the best shooter in the world. He is a gold medal winning rifle shooter. And he shoots the warthog behind the shoulder, gut shoots it. And by the grace of God, three hours later, we found it because of the proficiency of a tracker. And he's going, how could I have done that? It is almost unavoidable that you are gonna revert back to that muscle memory. There's my sight picture behind the shoulder. And so you need to ingrain that in the shoulder, in the shoulder with repetition on live fire, on, on wild game, to reinforce that when you get on that buffalo, because I can tell you this, when you face a buffalo for the first time after everything you've read and everything you've heard, I don't care who you are, you are going to be nervous. (laughs) And when you're nervous, (laughs) you will be. I was, everybody is. And when you are nervous, you do not do what's in your head. You do what is in your muscle memory. And I can't tell you how many people are like Matt Emmons and their first animal or so, they shoot in the wrong place because that's the way they were taught. And they haven't broken that habit of shooting behind the shoulder. You need to start developing the habit of shooting in the right place on African game before you face a buffalo or other large game. Now, cats are a little different. I'll just tell you quickly that leopards and lions, their vitals are much further back and you you do shoot behind the shoulder, maybe even a little farther back, depending on the animal with a, a leopard or a lion. But everything else, it's in the shoulder. I'd like to
0: recommend the Hunter Conservationist podcast. It's a show that offers nuanced discussions about wildlife science, conservation, and responsible hunting in Canada. This podcast shares similar themes. So if you enjoy my show, I'm confident you'll also appreciate the Hunter Conservationist podcast. You can find it on the same platform you're currently using for listening. In addition, you can visit thehunterconservationist.com or simply click on the link in the show notes. That's very interesting. That's very interesting, and you're right. Yes, yeah, I was exactly thinking when you were saying the story that, you know, he probably done, like you said, muscle memory. It's almost you always, you always. Uh, to me. I have a, I have a, a question. It's maybe good time now to ask that question, and I presume that this is with relation to hunting a uh, dangerous game, where the the professional hunter, the PH, is also shooting an animal how how uh you use like no, no. no because no, th- this no, is no. what i so I tell you what i heard or 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 seen or, or read that the hunt the assumption is that the hunter who comes from america or europe or whatever they probably don't know what they're doing their their heart is pumping and they're like you know like in the bubble and i i can relate to that because i know when i hook up into my first barracuda it was like, oh, uh, and then I was just, just disgusted with myself. How could I behave that way? I'm an experienced angler. And that moment, everything went through the window. So I understand. And that's why, especially when you're hunting like buffalo, you have a, the pH is with you and they're actually shooting as well, the animal. So to some extent, the guy who goes shooting, they go, can go like, oh, and should like, over oh, like into the air, but the animal will be dead because they have the, you know, person who essentially knows what they're doing. Is that how it works? Is is, is
1: no? Wonder your no.
0: comments on that. It,
1: it, it, it's not. Now, I, 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 it, it can be, it, it can be, and there are, there are people of great means that by a Holland and Holland double in 470 Nitro Express that they've never shot before that traveled to Botswana in the older days and they want to hunt an elephant. And in that circumstance, the guy that has never hunted before that starts climbing Mount Everest as opposed to, you know, hiking in the hills first, there's a really good chance that if the hunter wounds the animal, not shoots in the air, but if he wounds it, and the pH is gonna know instantly, the pH will shoot the animal on a follow-up shot. Now, the hunter client may have said, I don't want you to shoot, I want this to be mine, but the ethics take over. If the animal is wounded, the hunter will shoot. But that doesn't happen with normal people. What happens with normal people like you and I? You go on the hunt, And the guy's going to know, or woman, because there are a fair number of professional hunters that are females now. But the professional hunter is going to know how much experience you have. And if you've hunted a lot, that counts for a great deal. If you've hunted Africa a lot, that counts even more because there's more of the nuance that you understand. And you have a talk with the pH that, all right, Do you want me to fire after you've shot? Yes or no. And that's if the guy's comfortable with you. If he's not, we won't have that conversation. Just what happens, happens. And if you make a good shot, you've made a good shot. And if you didn't, he's going to shoot. And that's the way it is. But if you have that conversation, you're well within your right to say, no, I don't want you to shoot. And he won't unless he has to. Now, there are a couple of PHs that I've known. It just love shooting so much that they're going to shoot no matter what. Now I've only hunted with that those guys just one time, and then move on to someone else because I, I don't don't appreciate that. But I'll, I'll I'll tell you the story of my first elephant hunt uh, because this is very apropos to, to to your question. This is my first elephant. I've hunted Africa a lot, but it's my first elephant. And the guy that I'm hunting with has an enormous. Um, enormous amount of experience. And he said, Oh, Steve, what do you, what do you want to do? And I said, this is my first, I don't want to try a brain shot. I want a good heart lung shot and I do want you to make a follow-up shot good or bad. Doesn't matter. And he said, okay. So we got on an elephant that we were tracking, we got to 19 yards. He's broadside. He's fine. It's just, it, it couldn't be an easier situation. It's almost anticlimactic because we've worked so hard to get to this point And there it is. And you've got this 55 gallon barrel size target to shoot at, at 19 yards, 20 meters. And so I shoot and shoot him in the heart. And it's a good shot. Now, I have been on a number of elephant hunts before this. I just haven't been the hunter. I've been the cameraman or I've been with someone. And every experience that I've had when an elephant is shot, that it turns away from the hunter to run. It turns away from the shot and runs. So I shoot. And the elephant starts to turn, but he's turning towards me. Now. Now. Do you know how they say when you're in a car accident, time slows down and you're able to see a lot of different things? I truly believe that when the brain is under stress, that you know we're supposed supposedly only use 10% of our brain. But when we're in a stressful situation, and I've had this happen to me two or three times, so I, 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 I'm not just making conjecture, I think this is really true. That when you're under stress, the rest of your brain kicks in and you're able to consider several different things at the same time because you can think so fast in relation to how things are actually moving. They do look like they're moving slowly. So as this elephant started to turn towards us and hadn't even turned towards us yet, I'm realizing that this elephant's gonna charge. Now he wasn't, but in my mind, every elephant turns away. So if he's turning towards me, he's gonna charge and he's only 19 yards away. And I have a, a blazer, straight pole blazer. And it is fast, 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 fast. So I make a good shot. He starts to turn, my brain kicks in. I slide that cartridge out, the brass out. I put a fresh cartridge in. I start to pull the gun up and I pull the trigger before it ever hits my shoulder because that elephant's going to charge. And it wasn't charging. It was just turning. And in this charging brain shot in my mind, I shot it in the tusk and knocked about two pounds of ivory out of it. Now the PH sees what's going on. And it's like, okay, this guy screwed up. He made a good shot, but now he screwed up. Oh, he dots it, it's done, it's done. Now, who killed the elephant? He killed the elephant. I would have killed the elephant. My shot was good. And the rule is in Africa, whoever draws first blood, that's whose it is. So, you know, if you shoot a buffalo and your buddy somewhere else, a buffalo runs by and he kills it, it's still yours. That's the protocol, that's the custom. But you. You won't have, a good pH will not interfere if he doesn't need to, and he will if he needs to. If I had left well enough alone, that bull would have turned and run away and died within a minute. But I didn't because I wasn't experienced, and I, you know, this is, gets back to why you don't shoot buffalo on your first safari. This is my first elephant, and I was excited and nervous and made a mistake that might have been critical if the pH wasn't there. It might not have been, uh, but I don't know. And so now, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. An elephant's a big deal, but I don't have this, you know, I just don't have this huge palpitation that, that changes my thought process. I know what I need to do and I know I what, I know how I need to do it, and more composed in the you know, Yes, that and, and I'll I'll steer us this way because I I do want to su- support a sponsor. I've been hunting with air guns a lot lately, and I've I've harvested two cape buffalo with the air gun. And if you're going to
0: talk about the fifty cal Humarex hammer.
1: I am, ah, I am. I was but actually. The, I was actually going to ask you about that because this is such an unreal piece of kit. Like, woo! <laughs> it, it is. But the the my point here is, I think I've harvested twenty buffalo. The last two have been with an air gun, and I've done one with a bow, with a crossbow, with a handgun. You know, I've done all of them, all every weapon virtually I've used. And if I didn't have that experience there's no way I would hunt a Cape Buffalo with an air gun. But because I have had experience and know where to place the shot, I know when to shoot, I know what the gun will do, what the ballistics will be and what the terminal performance will be. I only take a shot that I know is going to be a proper shot. You don't have that knowledge the first or second time you do something. Getting back to the point, Go to Africa, hunt some plains game, get some experience under your belt, then go for the big five, which is ultimately what people gravitate towards, and naturally is how they, right. they gravitate towards.
0: Right. So, since we mentioned uh, guns, how how prepared in that department a aspiring hunter who wants to go to africa needs to be is it a matter of like don't buy anything and you can uh, rent a gun where you where you are and they they will give you the proper caliber and proper gun or is it you know as usual you better have your own gun and practice hard so you know you know we can manage recoil and all all that and if that's the case what it would be uh, you know re- recommendation for that like a first time hunter who obviously like we said he's not gonna go he or she not gonna go for cape buffalo or or elephant on the first one
1: my answer has changed over time uh usually most hunters want to hunt with their gun Uh, it's just the way things are because you have experience with it you know what it does and if you go on a planes game hunt, you don't need a 3.75. You, you don't need a big gun. A 300 Win Mag is plenty, plenty big. Uh, a .30-06, you know, will do the job with a well-placed shot even on an eland. But uh, the, the change is, there's been a change in that transporting a firearm internationally is becoming more and more difficult. And because I have sponsored guns, I take my gun. That's just the way it is. And I go through all, jump through all the hoops that need to be jumped through. But it becomes more and more problematic every year. And fewer and fewer uh, airlines will carry guns. And and I'm not going to bash a company here. But if you fly through London with a firearm, you're an idiot. Because half the guns that go through Heathrow are either damaged or lost. Oh, I mean half, and so that limits the airlines that you can take from the from the U.S. Um,
0: What are they doing at Heathrow with those guns?
1: You know, there's there was a. uh, But I heard stories. You're right. there has been several. It's been three or four years ago, but they found like in a storeroom, hundreds of rifles, cased rifles. And I know at maybe a dozen people that their rifle has been broken in transit. I'm not talking about, you know, the scope is off. I'm talking that the stock is cracked <laughs> because it got run over with a forklift. Oh geez. Or I mean, the amount of damage that comes out of London not to and I'm not casting dis, being disparaging it's just a fact the amount of damaged firearms that come out of London is so great in proportion to where they come out everywhere else the amount of damage there's a definite anti-hunting bias I guess among the airline workers there you know, I've encountered that in the US with gate agents, and I've encountered it in South Africa. And you know, some South African airlines are not flying firearms anymore either. So my point is you need to be familiar with the gun. And if you are going for dangerous game, you need to practice with a high recoil rifle with a 375. You need to be able to shoot the gun that you shoot well. It doesn't matter the size but 375 is the minimum legal caliber for dangerous game. You just need to be able to place the bullet in the right spot. So you don't need a 500 Nitro Express. You need a 375 with 300 grain solid placed in the right spot. Because, you know, I I mean, I've killed a couple of elephants with a 375. I mean, it's just, it's not that hard to do because it's an adequate caliber. But if you've never shot big boar before, You need to get used to that. If you have your rifle and you want to go through the hassle and the expense of it, that's fine. I do it every time. But today, because of the difficulty, it is easier to pack your bag, fly to Africa, rent a firearm, buy bullets. It's much cheaper. It's It may not be cheaper, but it's certainly much easier. And you've got a whole other bag there that you can carry as opposed to, that being your second carry or check bag. And, uh, you know, if I wasn't hunting with a sponsored weapon, I'd be using what the PH has. Because if you're a hunter, and I don't mean a new hunter, but I, if you're an experienced hunter, a rifle's a rifle, man. I mean, you look, through, you know where it, you, you shoot it, so you know where it's, what the ballistics are, where it's going to hit. And you look through the scope or set up the iron sight and you squeeze the trigger. You don't jerk the trigger and you work the bolt. I mean, it's what we do. So it's weighing the factors. It's starting to tip in the way of the gun
0: that's that's very interesting um, listen uh, we're, we're, we' we' uh, we slowly but surely will be coming to an end of this show but I have a couple of uh, uh, specific questions I, that I wanted to ask um, first off is about first one is about hunting alligator crocodiles crocodiles uh-huh. so a question has always uh, make me wonder when you shoot crocodile you should it
1: in the skull. You shoot it in the brain, right? Because otherwise it will go. Or at the base of the skull and the C1 vertebrae. Those are the two shots.
0: Yes. Yeah, so so Basically you you, shot, you right? may be already asking uh, answering my question. So but th- then again the the trophy what you get after that is a skull. So you're you're actually shooting f- for what you potentially want to get with you. Like is yeah. there is it like uh, a way that then you know taxidermist or whoever's preparing it then kind of like a glue it together and stitching it and whatever or like like you said you're actually shooting on the base of a skull if you can and then you have your trophy
1: otherwise you, you don't how does well, that work it, it, i i don't know about the taxidermy i i imagine that they probably could repair it uh but I I get the point. You want the skull to be pristine. And you can take angled shots on crocodiles, but typically your best shot is broadside. And if you have the broadside, the brain shot and the neck shot, it's the same presentation. So if that's your goal, then the junction of the C1 vertebrae and the skull is where you aim. And that will, that'll incapacitate a croc. You know you've made a good shot when the tail just starts doing this. The, the croc doesn't really move, but the tail does this. And you, you know you've made the shot. Immediately after that, you shoot it in the shoulder and try to break its shoulder. Because I have had several crocs that sh- you're shot perfectly. And they do this and that motion Propels them into the water. And crocs don't float until they're rancid. So then you've got a problem.
0: <laughs> right. That's, 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 I learned something that I didn't expect. That.
1: <laughs> the but, but the next shot, the C1 vertebrae, that is, that's the shot to leave the skull intact. Right,
0: right. Okay. Um, the next question I have is this discussion. Yeah, and I'm I'm know that I know that you're aware of that. Uh, how some people suggest that um, photo tourism, uh, the ones say like, oh, photo tourism can replace hunting and right, and then there's quite often a repeated argument, which I repeated myself on the podcast that, well, photo tourism is first of all you have a whole bunch of people, the footfall and the footprint is much larger. And then they are less likely to um, settle for anything less than luxurious accommodation versus hunters are more likely to you know live in not such a great conditions and, and there's only like one or two people and they're you know they okay with sleeping in a, you know, suboptimal conditions because they're there for something else. But then even you mentioned that, yeah, but there are places where hunters are going and they're super luxurious and, you know, Michelin star. Like, uh-huh. I would like to hear your comment on on this particular. So what is the reality of hunters in Africa really willing to, you know, weather the elements and live in a tent and all that Versus like, no, 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 no. If I'm spending, you know, this several thousand dollars, I actually want this and that and hot shower and this and that.
1: The great thing about Africa is you can have whatever you want. You 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 can have either. And sometimes you can actually get both. And I'll, I'll just, I'll be specific. I've never been in a place I didn't have a hot shower. That may have been a bucket shower. But typically, even in the fly camps, they'll create something called a donkey, which is a barrel that they put under a fire underneath and it creates hot water that they have piped to your room and you can have a hot shower. But the, the crux of this and and what the anti hunters will say is that we don't need hunting because photo tourism is so much bigger than hunting. and, And that, that part is true more dollars are generated by photo tourism than hunting will come close to but the problem is that argument is kind of like the country of kenya where they abolished hunting i think in 1977 and they have game in their national parks everywhere else not so much because there's nobody there to keep the poachers away there's nobody that has a financial interest in that wildlife. And you can go to places like Kruger or Etosha or Okavanga, and they're, they're palatial, they're, they're fantastic resources. You see game that as a hunter, you're never going to see, you're never going to see a leopard on the side of the road in a hunting area feeding on a, on an Impala. You're just, you're never going to see that because the elephant, I'm sorry, the the leopard and Kruger is acclimated to people that they're not, they're not a threat. And so you have all of these people that their footprint for these palatial lodges are, uh, it's great, but it's in one area and they're going to generate a lot of area. But what about the other 99% of the continent? Because where we go I can be in a nice lodge. I can be my favorite place in Africa is a proper tented camp. I love living in a tent because you're not really living in a tent because it has a wood floor and a porch and an ensuite bathroom with hot and cold running water and a flush toilet. And you're living in a tent. And there's an elephant right outside your tent at night. I mean, it's there's there's a lion that walked through camp tonight. That is real. Africa to me. You hear the hyenas and the lions and the hippos. It's just fantastic. But the thing is, we're the only ones that see that. We're the only ones that pay for that outfitter to pay the government for that concession. Because the people that I advise that ask me, well, where should we go in Africa for a photo safari? They don't want to go where I go. Even though it's a better experience, they won't see as much wildlife a- as in, in the hunting areas they would in, in, in Atosha. But it's a different type of experience. And the rest of the continent, outside of those jewels of the continent, the rest of the places, they've got nothing because nobody goes there. And that's why they are so happy to see Me and people like us, hunters, international hunters that come with money and meat. That's the thing. The irony of Africa is these people, these indigenous people that live next to wildlife, they have virtually no protein in their diet. They eat maize, they eat milli meal, millipop, sudza, whatever the area, whatever you're in, what they call it. They eat maize and that's pretty much all they eat unless there's a hunter around to provide meat. they have very little protein even though they're surrounded by protein and phototourism has its place and it's important and it's they're like big zoos that are self-contained they're like their own terrarium they they do their thing they're self-contained And people can go in and interact on a fairly close basis and see what wildlife is. And that's a fantastic thing. It's an experience that everyone should try to do in their life because it's wonderful. But following an elephant track or a herd of buffalo through the Jess in an area when you come home, there's no lights. And here's the other thing, Tommy there's no lights. And you go out and you see stars like you can't imagine there's ever been. I was, I was moved to tears the first time I saw that because it's like you're, the, you're Adam. It's Adam and God, and, and, and that's all there is. It's, this is just the way life used to be, this is the way the world used to be, and they don't get that. In Kruger Park, they get something close, but they don't get what we get. We get the real experience, interacting with the animals, and we get the benefit of that endeavor, benefiting people and wildlife. Yeah, And that's no, what I
0: agree. What I agree. I saw I saw this like 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 a you know train of Land Rovers going one after another, and then the lions kind of between them, and I, I watched this uh, on, on a video as like, well, that's not like, not wildlife. That's not what I would imagine as a wildlife. That's very kind of quasi-semi domesticated, accustomed to Land yes. Rover's wildlife yes.
1: rather than- it, it is. But in a seven and a half billion person world, that's the accommodation. We can't go on a Roosevelt safari ever again. We, we can't do it. It's, there's, there's too many people. And when people tell me that we shouldn't be hunting, I come back with the phrase, well, what are we going to do with the people? Are we going to get rid of half a billion Africans? Because if you want it to be the way it was, we're going to have to get rid of a lot of people. We're just going to have to just eliminate them. Whatever way you choose, in order for the wildebeest to do what they used to do in Botswana, we're going to have to kill a lot of people. And that's just yeah, it's just the accommodation we make. It's where we are in the world that we're in. And it's a good accommodation. I'd rather be have that photo of the lions feeding on whatever with a, a range or a land cruiser in the background than not have it at all. You know, I than not to have seen the, the lion. But I prefer to work, to get close to the animal, to see it in its habitat and be in its own backyard without it knowing I'm there. And then I make the decision. Is this an animal that's worthy of a harvest? Is it older? Is it past its prime? Is it what would benefit the herd? And then I make the decision. They're doing that now with lions in Tanzania and Zambia. You can't shoot a lion that's under six years old. you you can't because we know now that shooting a pride male kills a lot of cubs because of infanticides, the way lions are bears in North America, black bears do the same thing. And people, how could you shoot a cute bear? Well, you know, I just saved half a dozen cubs over the course of this bear's life, you know? So, and, and people don't understand that. And they won't hear you because of the emotions that they have. So we tell our truth. And if people listen, we listen And people like you giving voice to this dispassionate argument, you know, maybe it's going to reach somebody. Maybe it's going to reach somebody that we have a term called preaching to the choir. Yes, and you know, I know that's what we're doing here for the most part. But there may be somebody
0: you'll be surprised. You see that you'll be surprised because my my viewers on this podcast, which I you know sometimes feel like I'm uh you know i have like a two two sections of my audience and i'm regularly getting one or the other upset yeah. <laughs> because i've just I i'm imagine. just covering broad breadth of of subjects and like sometimes you know when i when i have a podcast with people who are running some uh, you know injured wildlife hospitals and stuff like that i have like know farming hunting community kind of upset like oh they're doing this and then i'm talking about hunting and then my you know invitations to some podcasts are getting revoked because we don't support hunting so uh, sometimes i feel like i'm trying to not preach to the choir and as in the return i'm getting stick from both sides
1: That's you know, but like you said, if there's a one
0: person that listens to that is like, oh, that's more complex than I thought, then I feel like my job is done, and then I'm I'm kind of happy.
1: Tommy, my success rate over the years, I've kind of kept track, kind of kept a running tally in my head. About one in every 20 to 25 people that I have this kind of conversation with. Okay, that makes sense. I buy that. I convince, you know four to five percent of the people that I talk to that science-based conservation is an appropriate tool for wildlife management most of the people 95 percent 96 percent of the people they never want to hear it they, they they do not want to hear you and I know we're running out of time but you know I've, I've oh it depends now, whatever how much time you have I'm, I'm, good. I'm good Dallas Safari Club Houston Safari Club—they have protesters that are out in front of the convention, you know, protesting. You know, it's not your wildlife to kill all that. And I love engaging those people, and I don't do it on a. I saw your.
0: A, I saw your post on Instagram. I saw your post. You on know Instagram. the thing,
1: that particular woman right there. You could see in her mind as we were talking. She, you could see that there was self-doubt, and there's a, a young man behind him. And he started asking me questions. He was asking me thoughtful questions because he's been fed this line of, you know, hunters are bad and these people are bloodthirsty and we can't have these kind of people in a modern society. It's just not right. We've got to do what's right. We've got to protect the animals. And then it's, your brain kicks in. And it's like, you know, what they're saying kind of makes sense. And maybe there's two sides to this story. And what I appreciate about what you're doing, and it's so hard. It's so hard because hunters shouldn't be upset about people who are taking care of injured wildlife. Because I'm, I'm going to give away my the, the, the basis of what my most of my uh, after-dinner speeches are about. Anti-hunters and hunters should join forces because we want the same things. We want what's best for animals. We want what's best for wildlife. We don't want wildlife to suffer and we abhor poaching. We agree on all three of those things. The difference is we, our method of doing that violates the emotions of those people. And so even though we are trying to achieve what they say they want to do, they don't want to do it. And you've probably seen this, but there was a woman on 60 Minutes when they had the three Amigos, the three species of, of Texas uh, antelope that were put on, uh, that you weren't able to hunt because they were endangered in Chad. And they're abundant in, in Texas. And 60 Minutes went down and did a report and they did both sides. And I was expecting to have this really one-sided slanted thing. And it was very even keeled. And the woman that was representing the anti-hunters was asked a question at the end by the interviewer, and Laura said, so you would rather see these animals go extinct than have them hunted, and her reply was, they shouldn't be hunted, And, and so that tells you how far these people are off the edge, how far past reality, because I would rather have Lions go extinct, then have you hunt lions and preserve them? That's not something that I haven't
0: heard before. I, that's, that's like crazy. It's, it's exactly like, because then it's like, because if they go extinct, that means end of suffering, and like okay, you know.
1: And <sighs> well, that, let's this moment just is just like, all okay. join hands and drink the Kool Aid, yeah, and, and, and let's just all kill ourselves now so there will never be any more suffering. Let's just kill everyone including ourselves and there'll be no more suffering
0: yeah i know i know yeah listen uh so since you said that you still have uh, a few minutes i will I, I will ask you a question that i'm really and this is related to poaching specifically to rhino poaching and and listeners may might find this a little bit random but some of them who who knows the subject uh, might be actually interested we or i and we a lot of people saw these these pictures of wounded rhino with the with the horn hacked off where the, where the rhino is still alive and i am wondering like how is it even possible and how is it not easier for poacher to kill actually the rhino before taking out the horn like how this even happens
1: how it's it, it, it's a it's a game of whack-a-mole because you come up with a solution for this And then they do it uh, it another way. And what they're doing right now, uh, we've made tremendous advances in anti-poaching, especially in the parks. Uh, There's some things that are going on that that they really don't want to publicize, but they're, they're, they're handling a lot of poachers. A lot of poachers are giving up because of some of the means that are being employed. But what you're talking about you know, there's before that fire a shot that kill the rhino that hack off the horn and send it to China. And now there are in Kruger, there are microphones all over the place. And when a shot goes off, they hear it, they triangulate, they know where it is. And you can send a response faster because the response is faster. They're able to employ some tactics that make poachers never want to come back. But now what they do. What the poachers will do is instead of shooting a rifle, they'll shoot a dart gun and they will sedate. It'll kill the rhino if it doesn't kill it with an overdose because they, they don't care about the amount. They just load the syringe full, they shoot it, and then they follow the rhino, which isn't hard to follow because they're so noisy. Even in the dark, they're easy to follow. And then, you know, I darted a ton of rhino. I mean, literally tons, uh, tons and tons of rhino, if you put it that way. But when they go down, you know, they're, you can do whatever. You know, you've, we take blood, we take f- uh, flesh samples, you know. No, you answered so my question right there. So so horrible. they
0: don't use the rifle because of the techniques employed, and
1: then, gotcha. That yeah. explains. that. Explains. The good news is, and COVID had a little bit to do with this, but it started in 19, uh, that Upward trend of rhino hunting has peaked and it started to come down. Um, part of that has to do you with mean poaching. Yeah, poaching has come. Rhino poaching has come down. Um, there were, I think, at one time close to two thousand rhino that were killed in South Africa in one year, and I think it's down in the. I think last year it may have been down in the 400s, but I think a real number is more like 800 now. And it's trending downward. And part of that has to do with China because they are prohibiting horn, uh, you know, as part of traditional medicine. And it has been that's been the driver. Uh, Vietnam and China have been the primary uh, consumers of rhino horn. And that is beginning to address the problem. Uh, it hasn't solved it, but it's it's headed that way.
0: It's, it's good to hear. It's good to hear. Um, uh, probably the, the, the one last, uh, thing that I want your view on, and that is quite something that is quite, uh, prominent in the media recently, which is bans on trophy import.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, right. And obviously in the UK, there is a talks about that. And then in the, in the California and in the States and, and all that. Um, I am curious of your comment on, uh, because this is quite often, like why this is an issue. If, and I'm, you know, playing devil's advocate a little bit, but that's a genuine question. If we're talking about um, experience and all these nice things, right? How this is even an issue that you can't bring the trophy. Right? Because if, if most of the hunters are after experience and experiencing the stars and nature and wildlife, they go like, eh, I guess I'm not going to get the trophy. Right. Or you get the trophy digitized and you come back home with the SD card in your pocket that like you come back with the photos, and then you get you know, 3D printed your you know elephant skull. And like you said, you put it on the wall and nobody will see the difference whether it's 3D printed or like whatever. Yeah. So if that's the majority, like how why it's even an issue and why is it a matter of like well we we hunting is under such pressure uh from you know the 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 general media outlets let's use, let's use that frame that it's a matter of like we cannot give up anything. Because then we keep giving up, or is it like well, actually bringing trophies back is a significant driver, and banning that would actually mean that significantly less hunters will be, will, you know, willing to go to Africa and bring a trophy.
1: And well, well that and, and what you just said is true. If you ban trophy import, there'll be significantly less hunters going, and if there's fewer hunters going, there'll be less money going into the conservation of wildlife. There's a process that a hunter goes through. And a first time hunter, much less an African hunter, you know, you, you want to relive in a tangible 3D form, what you've experienced and that in Yala on the wall the difficulty I had to go through and, and and you know it was so close and tight and it was a bow hunt. And you know, there's a lot of emotion that goes with that that can be just instantly, instantly created in your mind by seeing that that trophy on the wall. I understand that from a public relations standpoint, this is the sticking point because people don't understand what the trophy represents. But it's also in the United States, it's a violation of the interstate commerce clause because it is legal. And California can't legally do that. If I were rich, rich, I would file suit against the state of California for violation of the interstate commerce clause because they can't do that. But they can until someone stops them. Um, A lot of people I know don't bring trophies home anymore. I'm one of those people, very, very few trophies I bring home. Um, I, I, As you know, I harvested a really nice buffalo with an air gun. You know, I'm gonna bring that home. It's a 42 inch buffalo, which in and of itself is a is pretty neat buffalo and I did it with an air gun, darn it, and I'm gonna put that on the wall. We're building a new house and I'm gonna put that over the fireplace. That's because that's who I am. And I don't think it's appropriate for anyone to tell me that what I, what, the legal thing that I'm doing, I can't receive the full benefit from. It's my choice. It's not yours. If you choose not to hunt, you don't have to. It's like the people on social media. If you don't like what's on my page, don't look at my page. Because, I mean, I had a guy yesterday. It's like, well, how could you shoot that beautiful animal? How could you hunt that? Why are you looking at my page? Everything that I do it revolves around a little bit my private life and, and then hunting. Everything else is hunting. Why are you looking at this? Why are you commenting on this? And this is a symptom of the problem we have in society is that only your morals are right. Nobody else's morals are right. Only mine and whatever anyone else does is wrong. And I'll just tell you a quick story because this is important to me. And you, you may not have any awareness of this, but um, a long time ago, in my early career, um either the first or second show I ever did was with a gentleman named Chris Harrison. He was a uh, sports anchor on a TV station in Oklahoma city where I I live. And we got to be friends and we went on a dove hunt and we made a show and he had a brother that's a sea captain in Padre Island. And we, we fished with him and we made a couple of shows. And then Chris went to California to, for bigger and better things. And he became the host of the bachelor and he's been the host of the bachelor for, I don't know how long, I don't know how long that show's been on the air, but it's, you know, decades. And he said something recently about a a contestant who had been to a party several years ago that today wouldn't be looked on Appropriately, uh, and I, I can tell you from experience that you know I when I was in college there was a fraternity, and their basis, their foundation was the South, the the the, the American South, and and the Confederacy, and, and and all of that, and they would have a party to celebrate that. And in the eighties, not a big deal, and in the nineties, not a big deal. Things have changed, and I do understand that. But the problem is, Chris, and we don't keep in touch. We're not like close friends. Uh, but what Chris, and I haven't talked to him about this at all, but what Chris did was say that what someone did several years ago is looked upon differently then than it was would be today. And it's just coming out today. So we're using today's wokeness to judge what someone did in the past. Disney is going through and putting warnings on their own films that there may be things that you find offensive in this. There's a Disney movie called Songs of the South with Uncle Remus and the the Br'er Fox and Br'er Bear and Br'er Rabbit Tales. And they've locked it up and they'll never show it again because it casts Black people in a traditionally negative stereotype, which I understand is offensive today. But what Chris was doing was not saying what she did was right. Chris was saying what she did in the past is being judged by today's morals. And people who don't think about this, say, by golly, he's, he's a racist. He needs to go. He needs to leave the show. He doesn't need to be on TV because he's a racist. And not only is he not a racist, he wasn't condoning what she did. He was saying that what she did in the past is being judged by a different standard, which is true. And he has at least for now lost his job that he's done extremely well for decades because people are too closed-minded. Now, I'm not saying that we have been wrong in the past, and John Wayne movies from the past can't be judged by today's standards. The entertainment that I grew up on, there's a movie called Tom and Jerry coming out. It's a cartoon, and I grew up on Tom and Jerry, and they cut each other up, You know, they blow each other up. They do all sorts of violence to each other. And I haven't seen the movie, and I guarantee you there won't be one bit of that in because, oh, violence isn't funny anymore. And I do understand that. But we take something from the past and judge it by today's standards, and then you paint everybody that did it. I mean, think about this. People on the West Coast of our country are, are renaming schools that were named after Abraham Lincoln, who signed the Emancipation Proclamation, who was the person that kept the country together and freed the slaves. They're taking his name off of schools because he was associated with slavery, a slavery is abysmal. It's a sin. It's wrong. And we were wrong in that from the beginning. When, when we got our independence, when we won our independence from Great Britain, slavery had to be a part of it because it's the only way we can stay together. That's not an excuse. That's just reality. That's our history. We can't go back and rewrite our history. We were wrong about that. But we can't judge people today in today's context about what they did 50 or 100 or 200 years ago things were different in biblical times than (laughs) they were in the 1800s things change and we can't judge people by today's standards and that gets back to your question about trophies it is wrong for someone else to judge me because I choose to keep a memento from a legal and beneficial activity that I chose to participate in anybody that says I can't do that I don't have the right to do that that's kind of fascism to me I mean isn't that what fascism is
0: well you said you said you certainly have these things uh really well thought out and and yeah i i agree with you completely a lot of this is about imposing somebody's moral or ethical values on somebody else's like sure you 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 know like fine you don't want to kill anything or whatever like fine i'm fine with that but don't you know don't impose that on somebody else and look in in here in the, in the context of ireland and uk i had a countless conversations about uh you know for example fox hunting and uh, and hunting deer and reintroduction yeah. of wolves and like you know uh why you're why why you so for reintroduction of wolves because they will you know control deer but you're opposing hunters Hunting deer like what's the uh, right like like one one of my my friends uh, a, 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 a shooting journalist hes like yeah it's a known fact that deer doesn't mind being torn apart by wolves because it's natural right <laughs> so so uh, I, I I agree completely with you Steve on that um listen we're gonna be wrapping this thing up um, what is like what is your Prediction for the future of natural wildlife in general. We well, you know we know that we we losing wildlife. We're using the animals at at a you know uh, quite frightening pace. Freshwater fish, uh, fish in the ocean, uh, like you mentioned um, in 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 Africa, even that that what was happening in the times of Theodore Roosevelt. It's not going to happen anymore. So, how do you think in a, you know, time frame of your choice, 50, 30, 100 years, how it's going to play out in terms of wildlife and in terms of hunting and hunters win in that picture?
1: I think we have a very negative prognosis for hunting. I think our future is, is bleak because… We're losing hunters for lots of different reasons and the way our society's ethos is traveling, we're becoming the vast minority. And as more and more people are born into the world, as the population of the, of the, uh, of the world increases, there'll be less space for wild animals. So, wild plants, wild animals, nature will suffer because of our imposition. Now, I think there will be things that will happen. I don't know what they'll be, but there will be things that happen, science that can accommodate some of the changes that can save us from destroying ourselves. But I think what will happen that my daughter, and I have a four-year-old, so now I'm, you know, going back. This is a long, you know, long time frame. I think in her life, unless she is wealthy, she won't be able to hunt because the only people that will will be able to hunt on their own land on a private basis or be wealthy enough to travel to places and pay exorbitant rates. I, I, I think the... The days of inexpensive or manageable costs of international hunting uh, are going away. Uh, traveling with a rifle, tra- sending trophies home. The biggest problem is the, that certain, you know, many carriers won't ship trophies at all. You know, that's a, a corporate decision. Uh, it's not a, because, they don't want the antis getting on them. I mean, that's that's the thing. Uh, the antis know how to use social media better than we do. And they can incite the crowd. And what they say makes sense. You know, hunting kills animals and we're losing animals. We should stop killing animals. That's intuitive. What is right but counterintuitive is that we have to kill animals in order to save animals because the elephant that you harvested today by admission is having a bad day it was a bad day for him because he died but because he died a hundred elephants have a better chance of living and the population is increasing in countries where there's hunting where there's no hunting there are no elephants or very few elephants because the poachers because there's no one there to protect them I keep coming back to the same thing, but that's the foundation of who we are. And if people don't, if we don't do a better job at communicating that, Tommy, there's, there's three sets of people. 20% believe us and are on our side and know what we do is beneficial. And 20% are absolutely against us. And they're the kind of people to a greater or lesser degree that they'd rather see animals go extinct than have someone hunt them. The 60% in the middle are the ones that are going to decide the 60% in the middle that don't care either way. And what the antis are saying louder and better than us is we're losing animals. We should stop killing animals. We should stop killing animals and our science message. We're not good at it. It's not intuitive. It's not something you could put on a billboard very well, or in a TV commercial, you have to actually think, and that's hard for a lot of folks. And I'm just glad I'm my age, because it's not going to affect me. But I feel terrible about the kids that are coming up behind us, because I don't think they're going to have the opportunities that I had. I don't have the opportunities that my grandfather had, because grandpa could go anywhere he wanted and do anything he wants. But you know, the irony about that is, Grandpa never shot a deer in his life. He was born in 1899, lived his whole life in Oklahoma, except for a little part. And he never shot a deer. And the reason why is there weren't deer here. There were a few, but there wasn't even a hunting season until he was in his 30s. And because of people like us who are buying licenses and funding scientific-based conservation, we have more deer in Oklahoma than we know what to do with. Our population is growing exponentially and we can't harvest enough to maintain the population. So while grandpa could go anywhere he wanted, he couldn't hunt deer because there weren't any deer. And now I can't go anywhere I want, but I still have places to go and there's deer everywhere. So who has a better experience? Probably me. And maybe science will make it so that 50 years from now, we will be able to hunt and there will be opportunities and there's a, there's a, a life balance, you know, let's just give Disney credit where credit's due. There's a circle of life. And, you know, that deer in Ireland that's being eaten by a wolf that's, you know, it's been proven that it doesn't care. You know, a reasonable person would take issue with the fact, which is a death you'd rather suffer. <laughs> no, you obviously know? he was joking because it was like, uh, just, yeah, it's so, it's I, mean, so I I don't know, but it, it's the outlook is not not great. But all we can do is what you do, what I do is we just need to get the word out. And all we can do is one person at a time. And that's what we've got to do.
0: Well, I think that's a, that's a, that's a perfect moment to, to um, wrap this up. Um, Essentially, like you said, communicate and, and make our case. And, and um, if enough people start thinking and i think that this, you you said it um i feel like in general people thinking less and not necessarily because they're dumber but because they're being bombarded with so much information that our brains are not used to that and they just don't have a capacity for thinking and they have a time for thinking and you know, once after first 25 or 30 years of your life, you're not thinking and only being bombarded by various information, you, that's a skill that you lost and you're probably never going to have this level of thinking ever again in your life, in which case it's very unfortunate. So uh, is there anything you would like to leave us uh, uh, for the end? Any words of wisdom or any final thoughts?
1: Well, you know, you've been very generous with your time and given me the opportunity to, you know, say a lot of things. But it, it really comes down to in order for hunting to survive, it has to be sustainable. In order for wildlife to survive, there has to be hunting. That's really, that's really what it boils down to. And anybody that detracts against that, they're either an idiot or emotional. That's really what it boils down to.
0: Stevie, thank you very much. Appreciate it.
1: Tommy, appreciate what you do.